I asked a question on Facebook a few days ago. What were some things that we used to be able to do or bring onto a plane that we can't anymore? Many of you said smoking, and honestly, I didn't even know that was a thing until my husband's grandmother mentioned it some time ago when we were talking, how she used to love to smoke on planes to help her relax. I hadn't even thought about it then, but yeah, it seems totally crazy that you used to just be able to smoke right there on an airplane. Other answers, nail clippers, glass bottles, there are restrictions on sizes of bottles or containers with liquid, pocket knives, one of you said you can't stretch out your legs anymore, one of you said customer service or lack thereof, I suppose, another one of you said your husband, emotional support animals, and I guess the restrictions on those have been tightened. And one of you posted an article that said 16 random things you can't carry onto a plane. The list included magic eight balls, foam toy swords, fertilizer, bowling pins, cast iron cookware, fencing foils, English Christmas crackers, which one of you brought up in the comments as well, because they make this little popping sound when you open them, pool cues, gel heating pads, darts, cooking spray, gel candles, flammable paints, large snow globes, ski poles, and canoe and kayaking paddles. So yeah, that list was pretty random. Robin Warder, you all know him from The Trail Went Cold, he said that his dad was a captain for Air Canada, and when he was a kid, he used to be able to go into the cockpit with him while they were flying, which is not a thing he would be able to do in these post-9-11 times. Tweezers, lighters, needles, pins, embroidery needles, though that might be a little bit more relaxed right now. Alcohol, one of you said crying babies, but I mean, so do you have to get off the plane if your baby won't stop crying? Is that a thing? Do you get kicked off? Well, anyway, along with the things that we are no longer able to bring onto a plane, over the years, security measures have been made very, very tight, especially after... 9-11 when those hijackers were able to take over planes by barging into the cockpit with box knives. There was the shoe bomber guy and from then on that caused everyone to have to take their shoes off while going through security. The 2001 terrorist attacks prompted the tightening of airport security around the world, which had been pretty tight before then. There had been a time when the airport had very little in the way of screening and security. There weren't any metal detectors. There were no Transportation Security Administration or TSA security guards. Luggage wasn't x-rayed or searched. It was actually relatively easy to sneak even a small firearm onto a plane without anyone noticing. Because of the minimal amount of security, there had been a spike in hijackings. An article on CNN.com said, quote, That's the way it was in the United States in the early 1970s when an epidemic of airline skyjackings dominated the news. Hijackers' motives ranged from political to financial. Their destination spanned North America, Europe, and Asia, and quite often included the island nation of Cuba. The hijackings took place against a backdrop of dramatic social change and the Vietnam War. 
Like I had mentioned a moment ago, many things have changed when it came to flying in the wake of 9-11. That's what would normally happen. There'd be an incident, a plane would be hijacked, or someone would manage to sneak a bomb onto the plane. An investigation would ensue, and additional security measures would be implemented to prevent these things from happening again. However, there were two tragic incidents that occurred about 22 and a half years apart, when the manner in which the perpetrators managed to carry out their plan were eerily similar. The lessons were not learned, and history unfortunately repeated itself. We're going to examine the circumstances of these two events in this bonus episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Flights 773 and 1771. Olympedia.org is a database that lists every person known to have ever participated in the Olympic Games along with the years they competed, their country, their sport, and where they placed. The site also has a link to all Olympians who have died in aviation crashes. There are 127 names on this list. Most recently added was Kobe Bryant who participated in the 2008 and 2012 Olympic Games. Anyway, I was linked to the site while I was researching our story today involving a man named Francisco Gonzalez, who was from the Philippines. He was born in 1936. However, the exact date he was born is not listed. So he would have been either 23 or 24 when he competed in the Olympics. The short paragraph about him in part read, quote, Francisco Gonzalez's Olympic participation was fairly unremarkable. Together with Fausto Preisler and Jesus Villarreal, he finished 24th in the Dragon Class sailing event at the 1960 Rome Games. And that would be Francisco's only appearance in any Olympic Games. Shortly after the Olympics, Francisco moved from the Philippines, settling with his wife in San Francisco, California, and it did not say if the couple had any children or not. From there, it seemed as though Francisco's life had begun taking a turn for the worse. Olympedia.org said he moved to San Francisco and got in trouble, and that is a bit of an understatement. He found himself in a tremendous amount of debt, and to make matters worse, his wife wanted a divorce. All of this was happening to him by early 1964. From there, Francisco began telling his friends that he was going to die on either May 6th or May 7th. And with that, he went ahead and purchased a round-trip ticket to fly from San Francisco to Reno, Nevada. His flight into Reno was on Wednesday, May 6th and his return flight was the following day, Thursday, May 7th. Whether or not any of Francisco's friends made the connection between the dates that he said he was going to die and the dates of his flight to and from Reno, I don't know. I don't even know if anyone really knew he was taking this trip. It seemed somewhat impromptu. Since he was going for just one night, I can't imagine that he brought that much stuff with him. I mean, he may have had only a carry-on, if that... 
Whatever the case was, the one thing that Francisco did have with him when he flew into Reno was a recently purchased firearm. When Francisco got to Reno, he went to a number of casinos, and according to a witness who saw him at various times that evening, it was obvious that he didn't really care if he was winning or losing. The following day, he boarded his flight home, which was Pacific Airlines Flight 773, departing from Reno, headed to San Francisco with one stopover in Stockton, California. However, the plane would never make it to its final destination. Shortly after taking off from the Stockton stopover, transmissions from Flight 773 were coming in kind of garbled, and before long, the plane vanished from the air traffic controller's radar. The following information is from the Civil Aeronautics Board's investigation into this incident. The plane flying as Flight 756 arrived in Reno, Nevada the previous day, which was May 6, 1964, at 7.40 p.m. The plane was refueled in preparation for its return flight the following day. People who had contact with the crew of the return flight flying as Flight 773 in Reno the following morning of May 7, 1964, noted nothing unusual during the crew's preparation for the flight. Both the captain and the first officer were cheerful and their behavior was, in all respects, as observed on previous occasions. 33 passengers boarded Flight 773 in Reno for the flight to Stockton. The crew consisted of the captain, the first officer, and one flight attendant. There were no discrepancies appearing on the aircraft log prior to the departure from Reno, and that departure from Reno was at 5.54 a.m., The flight from Reno to Stockton was routine and arrival was at 6.28 a.m. Two passengers deplaned and 10 passengers boarded for a total of 44 people on board, including the three crew members. The captain and the first officer were observed to be in their respective seats at departure. Weight and balance were computed to be within limits. No refueling was required at Stockton. Pacific Flight 773 was cleared by the Oakland Air Route Traffic Control Center to the San Francisco airport to climb in visual flight rule conditions to 6,000 feet and maintain 6,000 feet. The clearance was acknowledged correctly by the crew and departure was at 6.38 a.m. At 6.45 a.m., the Oakland Air Traffic Control Center instructed Flight 773 to turn left to a heading of 235 degrees in the direction of the San Francisco Final Approach course. At 6.46 a.m., the control of Flight 773 was handed off from Oakland Air Traffic Control to Oakland Approach Control. At this time, the aircraft's radar indicated that it was three miles southeast of the Altamont intersection. At 6.47, the flight established radio contact with Oakland Approach Control, who transmitted control instructions and the current altitude and advised that the aircraft's transmission was garbled. At 6.48 a.m., Flight 773 responded, Roger, how do you read now? The approach controller replied, it's still the same, Sounds like overmodulation. Immediately following this transmission, at 6.48 a.m., a high-pitched message was heard and recorded on the Oakland Approach Control Tape. 
The content of this message was not clear. However, on the basis of laboratory analysis, the most probable message was determined to be, quote, Skipper shot. We've been shot. I was trying to help. The approach controller requested that the speaker say again, no other transmissions were heard from Flight 773. Further analysis of the recording found while some of the words were uncertain, the words that were most reliable were shot and help. Shortly thereafter, the radar target of Flight 773 was observed to become weak and then to disappear from the scope at a point approximately 18.5 nautical miles from the Oakland radar antenna site. That's about 21 regular miles or 34 kilometers. The approach controller attempted to contact the flight, but without success. A message was then broadcasted to Flight 773 advising that radar contact had been lost and an alternate routing to San Francisco was provided. Another aircraft in the immediate vicinity, United Flight 593, was asked to determine whether that crew had Flight 773 in sight. Their report was negative. At 6.51 a.m., United Flight 593 reported, quote, There's a black cloud of smoke coming up through the undercast at 3.34 o'clock position right now. It looks like oil or gasoline fire. At 6.49 a.m., a seismograph station located at Camp Parks, California, approximately three miles or four and a half kilometers from where that cloud of black smoke was coming from, recorded a disturbance of unknown origin. This seismic activity would later be determined to have been caused by Flight 773 slamming into the ground. At 7.20 a.m., the Oakland Air Traffic Control Center watch supervisor received information that the wreckage of Flight 773 had been located. Witnesses along the path of the flight and near the impact area described a generally westward flight path prior to impact. They described extreme and abrupt changes in the altitude of Flight 773, coupled with erratic sounds and a large ball of fire following the final impact. Weather conditions at the time were described as overcast with good visibility. The aircraft struck the upslope of a hill. The wreckage was confined to the east slope of the 800-foot hill and strewn 1,050 feet up the slope and along a 500-foot width from the main crater. The main crater was at the 640-foot elevation. All of the aircraft's flight control surfaces were found around the main impact crater. Examination revealed no evidence of any failure or malfunction of the aircraft or any of its components prior to impact. There was no in-flight fire nor evidence of operational causal factors. Both engines were severely damaged by impact. The cockpit area was so completely destroyed by impact that only four small pieces of the instrument panel were retrieved. No single portion of more than eight square inches was recovered. Portions of the seat frame tubing from the captain's seat were recovered. Microscopic examination of this tubing at the FBI lab disclosed silvery metallic smears in an indentation in the tubing. Analysis of these smears revealed the presence of lead and antimony. The FBI report concluded that the indentation in the tubing was produced by a bullet.
A search of the wreckage area disclosed the presence of a 357 Smith & Wesson Model 27 Magnum revolver containing six empty cartridges which had been fired by the weapon. It had a broken frame, jammed cylinder, missing pistol grips, and human tissue was adhering to it. Clothing fibers were embedded in and adhering to the human tissue. The gun with ammunition and a cleaning kit had been purchased by a passenger on Flight 773 named Francisco Gonzalez on the evening of May 6, 1964. Mr. Gonzalez had advised both friends and relatives that he would die on either Wednesday the 6th of May or Thursday the 7th of May. He referred to his impending death on a daily basis throughout the week preceding the accident. On the evening of May 6th, Mr. Gonzalez departed San Francisco International Airport aboard a Pacific Airlines flight for Reno, Nevada, with a return reservation for Flight 773 on the following morning. Shortly before boarding the flight to Reno, Mr. Gonzalez displayed the gun to numerous friends at the airport and told one person that he intended to shoot himself. Various persons saw Mr. Gonzalez board the Pacific Airlines flight at San Francisco International Airport on the evening of May 6th carrying a small package which contained the gun and the ammunition. On that same evening, Francisco Gonzalez had purchased two life insurance policies at the San Francisco airport in the total amount of $105,000. Now, I wasn't quite sure how that worked, so I looked it up, and some of you may have known about this or possibly even remember it, but there used to be life insurance vending machines in airports. Before you got on your flight, you could insert $2.50 in quarters into the machine and purchase yourself a life insurance policy for that flight. I was not aware of such a thing, but it was ultimately phased out in North American airports. While there were a handful of planes that were bombed in order to commit insurance fraud, that wasn't the reason this insurance business model fizzled out. It was mainly because air travel had become more safe and more routine than it had once been, so the demand for this type of insurance had declined. So back to the report on this case. Another passenger aboard Mr. Gonzalez's flight from San Francisco to Reno remembered that Gonzalez was carrying a small package and was seated in the front seat behind the pilot's compartment. While in Reno, Mr. Gonzalez spent the night visiting various gambling establishments. He gambled that night and one casino employee asked him how he was doing, to which Gonzalez replied that it would not make any difference after tomorrow. Several persons recalled that Gonzalez had a large bulge in his clothing and others reported that he was carrying a small package while in Reno. A janitor at a gambling club where Mr. Gonzalez was known to have spent part of the evening discovered a cardboard carton for a Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum revolver and a gun cleaning kit in the waste paper container. Both of these items were identified by the seller as part of Mr. Gonzalez's purchases on the preceding evening. Interviews with relatives and associates and acquaintances revealed that Gonzalez was disturbed and depressed over marital and financial difficulties and that he cried continuously during the evening of May 5, 1964. A credit check showed that Mr. Gonzalez to have been deeply in debt and nearly half of his salary was committed to pay back loans. 
Thorough background investigations were conducted of the other occupants of Flight 773, including the crew. Those investigations revealed no undue health problems, unusual purchases or holdings of insurance, or indications of despondency by any other person aboard the Pacific Airlines Flight 773 from Reno to San Francisco. The board and the FBI conducted a thorough screening, vacuuming, and sluicing operation of the wreckage site, and sluicing is another word for washing or rinsing. All human remains were x-rayed for metal. Fragments which could not be identified on the x-rays were extracted and inspected visually or by laboratory analysis. No bullets or unusual types of fractures were ever found. Toxicological studies were essentially negative. Alcohol determination on the remains of the captain was negative. Alcohol and drug determination on the remains of the owner of the pistol were negative. Spectrographic examinations were made on the human remains of tissue recovered from the crash site from the vicinity of where the remains identified as those of Mr. Gonzalez were found. In one specimen, the lead present in the sample was markedly elevated compared to other metal components in this tissue, indicating that the object causing the wound was lead or predominantly lead. No spectrographic examinations could be made of the captain and the first officer because of the lack of identifiable human remains. I did read that when a search of a wreckage site like this is going on in the debris field, they first look for human remains, and then they next look for personal belongings, and the last thing that are searched for are the parts of the plane. The flight recorder aboard Flight 773 was recovered intact from the wreckage, although it sustained severe crushing damage. The flight recorder was read out using the Civil Aeronautics Board flight recorder readout machine. Now, over the next couple of paragraphs in the report, it does go into how things went from normal to abnormal in the 10 minutes after the plane departed from Stockton. It's just a bunch of numbers and altitudes and airspeeds and magnetic headings and degrees, knots, acceleration, descent, just how the plane was flying before it crashed. So I'm going to skip all of that mumbo jumbo. The investigation revealed that the crew was properly qualified for the flight and that the aircraft was properly dispatched. Examination of records and the investigation disclosed that the aircraft was maintained in accordance with existing Pacific Airlines and Federal Aviation Agency approved directives and procedures, and that the aircraft was in an airworthy condition prior to the occurrence of this accident. As indicated above, there was no substantive evidence developed during the investigation to indicate that a power failure was a casual factor in this accident. The flight recorder tape indicated normal flight until 6.48 a.m. when a steep descent began. Fifteen seconds later, the first officer broadcast his last high-pitched transmission. That transmission and the flight recorder of a momentary interruption in the dive 22 seconds after it began were the only indications of the flight crew's actions during the final minute of the flight. This evidence does not furnish sufficient parameters to determine the specific time point at which both pilots became completely incapacitated. Such a measurement is not essential to the determination of the cause of this accident. 
This evidence does, however, indicate the improbability of pilot suicide. The results of the FBI's investigation are set forth in the factual portion of the report. The total evidence clearly indicates that the captain and the first officer of Flight 773 were shot by a passenger. The plane that they were flying was a Fairchild F-27 that was built in 1961. In command of the plane was 52-year-old Ernest Clark. He had served in the Air Force in World War II and at the time of the crash was a senior pilot with Pacific Airlines with more than 20,000 hours of flying time. His co-pilot was 31-year-old First Officer Ray Andrus, and he had 6,640 hours of flying time. And the flight attendant on the plane was 30-year-old Margaret Schaefer. The plane was carrying 41 passengers. And to quickly review the timeline of the flight, it had taken off from its stopover in Stockton at 6.38 a.m., The air traffic control instructed the pilot to bring the plane up to an altitude of 6,000 feet. The pilot answered and informed the controller that they were leaving their current altitude of 2,000 feet. The control tower in Stockton told the pilot to make contact with the Oakland air traffic controller, which they did. From there, the pilot was told to keep the plane's altitude at 5,000 feet. Seven minutes after takeoff at 6.45 a.m., the Oakland air traffic controller gave Flight 773 instructions for their final approach course to San Francisco. One minute later, Oakland air traffic control handed the flight over to approach control, and a minute later, they made radio contact. It's now 6.47 a.m., nine minutes after takeoff. Not long after Flight 773 made radio contact with Oakland Approach Control, it is believed that 27-year-old Francisco Gonzalez came into the cockpit area of the plane where the pilot and the co-pilot were seated and shot Captain Clark in the back through his seat. But the bullet struck a portion of the seat's frame and did not injure Captain Clark. Gonzalez fired a second shot at Captain Clark, this time killing him instantly. Gonzalez next turned the gun onto First Officer Andrus, shooting him and wounding him critically. The plane then begins a vertical dive, traveling at a speed of 2,100 feet per minute. However, First Officer Andrus struggled to bring the plane out of this dive. A very garbled transmission that is believed to be First Officer Andrus comes through where he says, I've been shot, we've been shot, oh my god, help. The plane continues to steadily climb again over 3,000 feet, but First Officer Andres is shot again, killing him as well. The plane entered into another dive before Gonzalez then shot himself, taking his own life. Flight 773 slammed into the hill near Danville, California in Contra Costa County at 6.49 a.m., and it was a crash that was picked up by a nearby seismograph. All 44 people, crew, passengers, and the perpetrator were killed. There were no survivors. The Civil Aeronautics Board, along with the FBI that joined the investigation in a search for evidence so that the criminal aspects of the accident could be properly pursued, determined that the probable cause of this accident was the shooting of the captain and the first officer by a passenger during flight. Gonzalez worked in a warehouse and resided in San Francisco. 
I mentioned earlier that he was having troubles with his marriage and his finances in the months leading up to the crash. The firearm he had purchased the day before was recovered and it was discovered that the life insurance that he had purchased, he had made his wife the beneficiary. He had been telling friends that he was going to die and he was pretty specific about the dates that it would be either May 6th or May 7th. Those were the dates of his flight into Reno and his flight back. Francisco Gonzalez had been known to be talking about his death or his desire to die pretty much every day leading up to this. The gun he purchased, he had bought it from a friend, which was recovered in the wreckage and had been matched up with its known serial number. He had shown the gun to some of his friends the night before his flight, and it's even been reported that he showed it to some of his friends at the airport. He even told at least one person that he had plans to shoot himself. Despite the warnings and the red flags, it apparently wasn't enough for anyone to be alarmed into taking any kind of action. The only corrective action listed in this Civil Aeronautics Board report reads as follows. These amendments, which became effective August 6, 1964, require that the door separating the passenger cabin from the crew compartment on all scheduled air carriers and commercial aircraft must be kept locked during flight. And if I'm not mistaken, this was a corrective action that was revisited following the 9-11 terrorist attacks since those hijackers were able to make their way into the crew compartment and take over flying the planes. And other than that, there was no other mention of any corrective action taken regarding the firearm, which might be why we have a second story to discuss that took place 22 and a half years after this one. This crash of Flight 773 became and continues to be the worst mass murder in California history. Now we're going to talk about a man named David Burke. He was born May 18, 1952, in the UK and was the second of four boys to Altamont and Iris Burke. At some point, the family moved from the UK to the United States, settling down in Rochester, New York. Tragedy struck the family when the youngest of the Burke boys died as a result of a heroin overdose. David, while he never got married, he did father seven children with four different mothers. And at the time that our story takes place here, he was 35 years old. In a short video that I watched about David Burke, it said that there was a wide variety of descriptions given about him as a person. Some would say that he was quite amicable, that he made friends easily, and he would never hesitate to lend a helping hand whenever anyone needed something. Then there were some that described him as being violent with an uncontrollable temper. With the limited amount of information that we have out there about David, it sounds like both of these assessments may very well be accurate, which may be a sign that something else is going on here with him, perhaps something like borderline personality disorder. Anyway, when David was about 21 years old, he began working at U.S. Air in New York, and it was a job that he would hold for more than 14 years. Though there was some trouble that David had been involved in while employed with the company. He had come under investigation as being suspected of some possible involvement with drug trafficking from Jamaica into the United States, and he was doing so through his work at the airport. 
There was no definitive evidence of David's involvement, and he was never charged with any crime. In addition to the suspicion of drug trafficking, there had also been some rumors going around U.S. Air that David was a part of an auto theft ring. But nothing ever came of those allegations either. No charges were ever filed. As a result of these investigations, however, the law enforcement agencies that were tasked with looking into these cases had become quite familiar with David Burke, which can make things a little bit difficult and uncomfortable, especially if David is involved in these various illegal activities. So sometime in 1986, David made the decision to leave New York and move clear across the country to Los Angeles. And it is believed that he did this because of all the suspicions swirling around him, not only with law enforcement, but also at his job. Though he did have a girlfriend who at the time did live in the Los Angeles area, so that is thought to have been a factor in him wanting to relocate also. David managed to get a job transfer, so when he moved to Southern California, he continued working for U.S. Air. He settled in a small apartment in the city of Long Beach. In May of 1987, the airline that David had been working for, U.S. Air, by this time he'd been there for 14 years, that company was purchased by Pacific Southwest Airlines. When that acquisition was complete, David had become a ticketing agent. He was helping passengers, getting tags for their luggage, checking their bags, confirming reservations, assisting with seating, you know, things like that. He was still working with U.S. Air at LAX, which is Los Angeles International Airport. However, David was having troubles in his personal life, specifically with his girlfriend, a woman named Jacqueline Camacho. It was thought that part of the reason that he relocated to Southern California was to be closer to her, but things did not go well between them, and the problems quickly escalated. And while David was having trouble in his personal life, he found himself in more trouble at work, which has been said to have been part of the reason why he came to California in the first place was to get away from trouble. But it's becoming clear that trouble seems to follow David and strongly suggests that perhaps David is the problem. On November 18, 1987, just about six months after moving to Southern California, David was fired from his job with U.S. Air. He was caught stealing from the in-flight cocktail receipts or the cocktail fund. It's called a couple of different things, but I assume this is the money paid by passengers when they purchase beverages. Well, David had taken a grand total of $69 from the cocktail money, and he was caught on hidden surveillance cameras. And you know, this was late 1987, so security cameras weren't everywhere like they are now, and it was becoming a relatively new thing at this time. We can't say for sure because we don't know, but I think it's safe to say that this wasn't the first time that David had dipped into some money here when he shouldn't have been. He just had never been caught before, and he hadn't realized that there were hidden cameras now, so he was promptly fired. Of course, getting fired from his job was not going to make anything easier between himself and his girlfriend, Jacqueline. He had already been growing increasingly violent, according to her, but following his firing from U.S. Air, David had apparently flown to San Francisco and borrowed a Smith & Wesson 44 pistol and some ammunition from a former co-worker of his at U.S. Air named Joseph Drabick. 
Now, the details of how all of this went down are pretty vague, but at some point, David used the gun to essentially take his girlfriend Jacqueline and her six-year-old daughter hostage, forcing her at gunpoint to drive him around for about six hours. Immediately after this, Jacqueline filed for and was granted a restraining order against David. And all of this happened within the first couple of days into December of 1987. Well, anyway, David wasn't ready to just give up and walk away from the job that he had had for more than 14 years without at least trying in some way to get it back. His former manager at U.S. Air was a man named Ray Thompson. He was the one who was his boss, his immediate supervisor. He was 48 years old, and he had been with the airline for quite some time. David reached out to Ray and asked for a meeting where they could discuss his termination. And that meeting was scheduled for Monday, December 7th at 12.30 in the afternoon. Ray was married to a flight attendant who worked for American Airlines, and the couple actually lived in San Francisco, in the San Francisco area. But he worked in Los Angeles. So with the airline that he worked for, there are daily flights between San Francisco and Los Angeles, and that was his way of commuting. It only would take him about an hour and a half to get to work. And Ray did this flight back and forth every day. When David showed up for his meeting with Ray that day, he had high hopes that he'd be able to have his job reinstated. He had worked under Ray for quite some time and knew him to be a fair-minded boss. But Ray was also a stickler for the rules and regulations set in place for his employees. And it became apparent to David pretty quickly that he wasn't going to be able to convince Ray to give him another chance. After all, David had been caught on video stealing money. And it was a breach of trust that Ray was not going to forgive. Even if Ray wanted to give David his job back, he would not have been able to. Company policy called for David's immediate termination. And there just was no getting around it. And this upset David even more. And he was certain that if Ray really wanted to give him his job back, that he could. But Ray stood firm and told David that there was nothing that could be done. When this meeting with Ray ended, David switched gears and switched plans. He went to the ticket counter and bought himself a one-way ticket on Pacific Southwest Airlines Flight 1771 from Los Angeles to San Francisco, which was scheduled to depart that same afternoon of December 7th at 3.30 p.m., and it would arrive in San Francisco shortly before 5 p.m. And here is when a critical mistake had been made. You see, when David was fired, what the supervisors or those who were the ones who actually fired him, when they did that, they failed to collect his official employee identification cards. So typically, when airline employees boarded flights, they were allowed to bypass all the security checks that passengers are normally subjected to. So David was allowed to board the plane without having to go through metal detectors and without having to be searched at all. And hidden somewhere on his person, he was carrying the pistol that he had borrowed from that co-worker, or that former co-worker, as it were. And he got on the plane, and he took his seat, and he waited. Another passenger on this flight was Ray Thompson, 
David's former supervisor, who had just a couple hours earlier refused to reinstate David at his job. David was well aware that Ray lived in San Francisco and worked in L.A. and that his commute there every day was by plane. This was a Pacific Southwest flight number 1771, and even though David and Ray had worked for U.S. Air, I think I had mentioned earlier that these two companies had merged, one was bought out by the other, so that's why there are different airliners involved in this particular case. As David sat in his assigned seat waiting for the plane to depart, he grabbed an air sickness bag, and on it he wrote an ominous note that read, Hi Ray, I think it's sort of ironical that we end up like this. I asked for some leniency for my family, remember? Well, I got none, and you'll get none. I watched a short video about this story on YouTube, and the narrator described what happened next as follows. When the plane reached an altitude of 22,000 feet, David was able to take off his seatbelt and get up from his seat. He walked up the aisle towards the back of the plane where Ray was seated. As David was passing by Ray, he dropped that note he had written on that air sickness bag into Ray's lap. From there, David continued up the aisle and went into the plane's laboratory. In the privacy of this tiny space, David pulled out the gun from where he had it concealed on himself. He then exited the laboratory and went back down the aisle, again back towards where Ray was seated. And just as David was approaching Ray, he shot him twice. After David fired those two shots, a flight attendant who was nearby hurried into the cockpit and was yelling at the pilot and the co-pilot that there was a serious problem on the plane. While the captain was attempting to ascertain what exactly was going on, as he was speaking to the flight attendant, David approached the cockpit and shot her next, and then he told the pilot that he was the problem. David then shot both the captain and the first officer. With everyone on the plane that would have been able to control it, now dead or dying, the plane began a steep descent, and it is believed this either happened because the pilot or the co-pilot had become slumped over the controls of the plane, causing it to begin to go down, but it also could have been David himself having enough knowledge of the controls to send the plane plummeting. There happened to be another pilot on the plane for the same airline, Pacific Southwest, he knew that the plane was in trouble, so he got up from where he had been seated and tried to make his way to the cockpit to regain control of the plane, but David shot him as well. There were some sources that have said the last shot was fired was at this pilot who tried to help, while other sources have said that the last shot was David shooting himself. If that was the case, I did find it interesting that both Francisco Gonzalez and David Burke decided to commit suicide before the plane crashed. I mean, I'm fairly certain that they are aware that they're going to be pretty much obliterated when the plane hits the ground, but they both decided to shoot themselves so that they would be dead before the plane crashed. But anyway, at 4.14 p.m., almost 45 minutes after the plane took off from LAX, Traveling in nearly a vertical nosedive at approximately 700 miles or 1,126 kilometers per hour, Flight 1771 crashed into a hillside near Paso Robles in San Luis Obispo County. There were 38 passengers, 
five crew members, a total of 43 people who perished in the crash, including the perpetrator. And this would be one less casualty than the first crash that we discussed, Flight 773. And with these two plane disasters that met similar fates, separated by 22 and a half years, they remain the deadliest and second deadliest mass murder incidents in California history. The cockpit recorder was recovered and investigators were able to piece together the final moments of what happened. The final shot heard on the recorder is believed to have been David Burke shooting himself. The recorder also picked up an increasing windscreen sounds as the plane had pitched downward and began picking up speed. It descended in a steep dive and was traveling almost as fast as it would take to break the sound barrier. And like the investigation into Flight 773, the investigation into Flight 1771 found no apparent problems with the aircraft, its frame, its structure, or its engines that may have contributed to the crash. After sifting through the wreckage at the crash site, several key pieces of evidence were recovered that proved that David Burke was on the plane and that he was responsible for the crash. The handgun was recovered and it still contained six spent shell casings and it was identified as the one that had been loaned to David by that friend. The person who loaned it to David was spoken to and he confirmed that he did in fact loan it to him several days before the crash. They also found the note written on that air sickness bag. It was still intact and found amongst the debris. Then in speaking to David's girlfriend Jacqueline, or his estranged girlfriend as it were, she provided investigators with a message that David had left on her answering machine the same afternoon of the plane crash. In the message, David said, Jackie, this is David. I'm on my way to San Francisco, flight 1771. I love you. I really wish there was more I could say, but I do love you. And the most definitive proof that David Burke was in fact on this plane, and it's kind of gruesome, but you know these poor people on this plane crashing into the ground at that high rate of speed, their bodies are not going to be intact at all. The best anyone can do is the grim task of sifting through the debris field to see what can be recovered so as many of the victims as possible can be identified somehow. David Burke was one who was positively identified. One of his thumbs was found and the print was matched up back to him. Policies that changed in the wake of Flight 1771 included that when employees are terminated from any position within the airline, all of their identifications and credentials must be immediately seized. And a new policy was made that all members of the flight crew, including the pilot and the co-pilot, all of them have to go through the same security measures as all the passengers. Now, Dreamers, the only thing about this particular story that kind of gets to me is all the details about how David Burke got up from his seat and placed that note on his former boss's lap as he walked up the aisle and headed towards the bathroom. I'm not quite sure how all those details would have made its way into the story when the reality is that nobody who would have seen this happen in the plane would have survived to tell anybody about it. The cockpit recorder picked up what was going in the cockpit and it picked up the gunshots, but this interaction in the aisle between David and Ray... I just don't know how anybody would be able to say that that's what actually happened. I know that they found the note, and they know that six shots were fired, 
Unless the flight attendant was able to describe everything that was happening leading up to David shooting Ray in the aisle and that information was somehow being recorded, but I don't know, it doesn't seem like she had all that much time to give all sorts of details about David dropping this note into Ray's lap and then walking back into the bathroom and emerging with his gun in his hand. That's the only thing that I've been kind of hung up on when it comes to this particular story. In the beginning, I talked about the things that we are not allowed to do or bring onto planes that we used to be able to bring. Guns were a thing that were never allowed on planes, and here we have two incidents where even though there were red flags with these people, even though there were those who knew that these two individuals had access to a gun and were having some pretty serious issues going on in and around their lives, they both still managed to board airplanes armed with loaded handguns which they used to kill or at the very least incapacitate the pilots and the co-pilots, which ultimately led to both of these planes being sent into a nosedive and crashing into the ground. Even though the crash of Flight 773 happened back in the 1960s, and there has been a great deal of tightening of security when it comes to bringing weapons onto planes, even if there were a ton of restrictions in place, those restrictions did not apply to airline employees which enabled David Burke to be able to carry out his plan to commit murder-suicide by bringing down that plane. Was he inspired by Francisco Gonzalez? I can't say for sure, and there is nothing that I found that indicated that he ever knew anything about it. Okay, so that brings us to the end of these two airplane tragedies in this short bonus episode of California Dreaming. I know it's been about two weeks since I released a full episode of the show. However, I did manage to get the very lengthy final part of the series we've been working through on Patreon finished. And I want to thank all of you for the terrific feedback. And while I was happy to finally wrap it up and end it in eight episodes... Many of you expressed how sad you were that the series was over, and I was a bit surprised by that, but here's the thing. I don't always listen to serialized, one-case, long-form podcasts. I do occasionally, but I do like a different, in-depth story each week, which is why I do the show the way that I typically do it. Different stories, different crimes, we're just all over the place. Once in a while, we'll have a multi-part episode, but the one on Patreon is definitely the longest series we've ever done, and you're right. It could have easily been a standalone podcast on its own. There was certainly more than enough content that we went through. The thing with that is, is I'm not an investigator, and that kind of sort of seems like what these podcasts tend to do. They try to investigate unsolved or questionable cases. While the case that we covered is a bit controversial, I don't think it's all that questionable, and we had lots of our own opinions to share about it. Some of it we agreed on, some of it not so much. But it's so much speculation on my part and assumptions about the various aspects of that story that it was best for us to just keep it on Patreon and keep the discussion between us. Also, on another topic, and it's kind of on a personal note, 
I've posted about helping out my elderly neighbors that I have. I've mentioned it a couple of times on Facebook and how this situation has kind of cut into my podcasting time. But in case you're not on Facebook, let me quickly explain what's going on here. So I've become involved in helping out these two ladies. They are mother and daughter. The daughter, her name is Jane. She's 70. And the mother, her name is Betty, and she's 98. She's about to turn 99 in a couple weeks. And Betty, she has two other sons, but one of them has been estranged from them for decades. And the other one, I think he's about to become estranged from them. And what makes things even harder is while Betty had these three children of her own, Jane and her two brothers, none of them have any kids. So Betty, as old as she is, has no grandchildren. So she's depending on her daughter to take care of her. When I first started going over there to help them, it was to clear up some space in their living area that was so cluttered up. It was just clutter, boxes and boxes of clutter. But the hard part was is that Jane didn't want to let any of this stuff go. But over time, I've managed to kind of get some stuff out of there, maybe some of it without her knowing. But I just know it's not stuff she needs to hang on to. She doesn't need, like, her time cards from when she used to work 15 years ago. You know what I'm saying? So the daughter, Jane, who is in much worse health than her mom, even though she's, you know, 28 years younger than her, Her health had not been doing so well at the time that I came to know them, and she has some serious lung problems. She has a lot of trouble breathing. She's on a ventilator, and she's on oxygen tanks. She uses every inhaler she can get her hands on. She has a nebulizer, all those things, right? And the mom, she doesn't have anything particularly wrong with her except for the fact that she's just old. She needs assistance with just about everything. Betty... In her 98 years, she was uh, in the Army in World War II, and in the Korean War, she was a nurse, and that's what she did for most of her life. She's striving to maintain as much of her independence as possible, and part of that is staying in her home, and they're hoping for her daughter to be able to help her. So all of this started about three months ago. And last month, a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving, I had to call 911. Jane's oxygen levels had dropped really low and she was unable to bring them back up to normal levels and it turned out that she had pneumonia. At that time, the paramedics were concerned about the mom, like who was going to be around to take care of her. Obviously, I'm not equipped or capable to do around-the-clock care for this elderly woman. And the only family member that they had around was at least one of her other children, her son. So one of the paramedics called him and told him that he needed to come over and take care of his mom. And he did so, but he was very reluctant. He took care of her for a couple of days until Jane was back from the hospital. And I went to go pick Betty up for her because he wouldn't bring her back. But anyway... In the meantime, in all of this, Jane, she is married and she has a husband. He's pretty fit and capable, but he made his career in the Navy. He was in the Navy for a long time. His home has been in Virginia, and that's where he has stayed while Jane has come out here to Henderson, Nevada to care for her elderly mom. He flew out here when she went to the hospital for pneumonia and he stayed for a couple weeks. Then he flew back home. Ever since the day after Thanksgiving, I've been back helping the two of them twice a day for breakfast and dinner. 
and it's been pretty much seven days a week for the last two months, with the exception of when her husband had flown out from Virginia. Well, last week, Jane's health suddenly went bad again. It was a whole day went by that I didn't hear from her. She didn't call or message me. I went over there on my own in the morning, and she was still talking and answering questions, and she seemed sort of tired, a little bit lethargic, but she always looks tired and lethargic. So I made breakfast, and I went back home for the day. So the rest of the day passed, and I still hadn't heard from her. So I waited a little bit longer than I usually do. I was hoping to hear from her, get a text message or a call, but she never called. So I went over there at night. I went over around 8 or 8.30, and I found Jane unconscious. So I had to call 911 again. She was deprived of oxygen, as it turns out. That's what uh, they ended up telling me later on. And she likely would not have made it through the night if she hadn't gotten help. So I stayed with Betty for the next two days because when I tried to call or text her son, who I had gotten in touch with on the previous medical emergency, um, he ignored my calls and ignored my text messages. So I figured he's just out. So I ended up staying with Betty for two days until the husband was able to fly back out from Virginia. So this was just this past Tuesday and Wednesday this week of December. Tonight is December 20th, I think it is. And yeah, this is Sunday that I'm recording this. So this happened all earlier in the week. Um, He's out here now, the husband. So things have kind of eased up on me a little bit. And it looks like they're going to have to get help in a living situation that's better suited to care for both of them. So they really need more help than I'm capable of, really. I don't think I'll be very much longer working with them I think they're gonna have to go into some sort of assisted living situation so I am going to California tomorrow that's Monday December 21st and I'll be coming back on Friday the 25th I'm going to try my best to get back on track with the podcast but other than that everything is good on my end I'm okay Because there hasn't been as much productivity with the show as I would like there to be doesn't mean that I've completely, like, fallen apart here. I'm good. And I'm happy to have been able to at least record this short bonus for you before I go to California. And I hope all of you have a really nice holiday. And I know it's weird and hard to be with our families in these strange times And hopefully we will be getting back to some kind of normal come 2021. Happy holidays to all of you, whichever holidays that you do observe. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. Welcome to my true crime podcast, Stolen From Me. Every week we will cover a different case, from the notorious Ian Huntley to the gruesome Ed Gain. You can follow me for more episodes and news on my Twitter page, at Stolen From Me Pod. I got into true crime from an early age. I was around eight years old at the time, and at school we had to write to someone famous. Everybody decided to write to the Queen, but I didn't want to do that. 
so I decided I was going to write to the Cray twins. This didn't go down well, but it did escalate in my fascination of true crime. Thank you for being a part of my podcast. Please leave a five-star review, like and subscribe, and see you in the next episode.